Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of The End of Sport. It's just me today. Unfortunately, Nathan and Johanna could not make it to today's interview, but I am very, very excited to welcome friend of the show, Ian Kennedy. Ian Kennedy is a sports journalist, a critical sports journalist. We'll get into that today and writer for the Hockey News and Yahoo Sports, and author of the brilliant book, On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport with Tidewater Press. We'll certainly be getting into a bunch of topics today, ranging from his book uh, and talking about race and sport and the historical antecedents of it, but also his work generally as a critical sports journalist. Before talking about some of the contemporary issues with harm and abuse in Canadian sport, uh, a theme that's been growing on the podcast. So without further ado, we'll get right into it. And welcome to the show, Ian Kennedy. Welcome to the end of sport to Ian Kennedy, who is a journalist and writer for the Hockey News and Yahoo Sports and author of the brilliant book On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport, which we'll certainly be getting into today. Ian is what I would call an actual critical sports journalist, and he hopes to challenge hockey to create a safer, more inclusive space for all to participate in, which indeed seems like an incredibly daunting task given the toxicity of hockey culture that we've talked about on the show and I hope we'll get into a little bit today. Ian, welcome to the show at long last. Thanks for having me. I wanted like just jump right into it um, and ask you about your book. In full disclosure, I've read uh, and and we provided a blurb from the end of crew end of crew our end of sport crew um, on this book, but on account of darkness, shining light on race and sport. I want you, Ian, to sort of walk us through what the book is about, why you wrote it, and perhaps what we can learn about race and sport from it. Yeah, well, the book itself discusses uh, through the lens of sport, of course, some of the issues surrounding race and racism through through history, really through the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, it does that. Uh, the title goes to the Chatham Colored All-Stars baseball team, which uh, were recently inducted into the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, the first all-black baseball team to win a provincial championship in in Canada. But it really isn't about the sports. It's about the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always grew up uh, loving storytelling. Uh, my, my grandparents were wonderful storytellers about their own history. So I was uh, really interested in preserving the stories, not just telling the stories, but keeping alive some history that... Uh, I saw was underrepresented or, or unspoken of in my area. Um, mm-hmm. But I also had this reckoning of the role sport plays in upholding the systems of oppression, not just reflecting uh, the issues present today, but actively contributing to them. Uh, so it was really uh, a project that I hoped would humanize the issues. Uh, you know, walking beside other people, entering their worlds, we can kind of see the impact of the harm that uh, racism and all of these structures, institutional and, uh, you know, at a, at a more micro level that uh, impact people. So I took these stories of black athletes, Japanese Canadians, indigenous athletes, and I really hope that it would bring together um, some of the, the commonalities that we face when we're talking about this structural oppression. And and I, I want to probe a little bit uh, on on the importance of, of say, Chatham-Kent, the area, the sports within the area, and, and sort of understanding the historical antecedents of race and sport in Canada. But but more specifically, like why, why it's an important kind of place um, for us to explore um, the, the intersections between race and sport. Yeah, it was really kind of... Uh, hesitant almost to to put Chatham Kent too central when describing the book to people because I think when you hear that you think where I've I've never heard of that place in my life before, and probably most people haven't. But uh, Chatham Kent was a very integral central spot uh, for the Underground Railroad and mm-hmm. uh, for abolitionists, and uh, we had two major stops on the Underground Railroad here and and black settlements during that time. Uh, but also during World War II, Chatham-Kent was home to five internment camps, 
Uh, we have two First Nations communities that that uh, are are part of our community as well, and uh, we have a group of incredibly significant historical athletes from the area, probably because of all those things. Uh, people like Ed Penance, who's debated mm-hmm. to be the first Indigenous athlete, albeit by a racist measurement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in Major League Baseball. Uh, he learned the game at residential school. He later played at the infamous Carlisle School with Jim Thorpe. Uh, our community is home to Fergie Jenkins, who's the first mm-hmm. Canadian inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, Olympic gold medalist Vicky Sunahara, the first ever black NCAA coach, Eddie Wright. I could keep going on and on. <laughs> so the, the athletic connections are really deep, but more so it's it's the, the idea that Chatham-Kent was this spot of freedom and... Uh, you know, for freedom seekers. And the community did play a paramount role in all of that uh, with people like Mary Ann Shad, who published The Provincial Freeman, uh, John Brown, who actually held the the meetings planning uh, the raid on Harper's Ferry, which of course was one of the first battles of the, the Civil War uh, in Chatham. So, uh, but the idea that Chatham is this free spot uh, is kind of representative of what we talk about in Canada overall um Mm -hmm. you know chatham kent residents fought vehemently against black settlement Uh, chatham kent itself is kind of this beacon of colonization we have like four percent tree coverage because of all of the uh the industrialization and the the farming that we've done here um and you know during world war ii having those five japanese internment camps people would think that the area would be um, somewhat welcoming to the labor but they weren't they fought tooth and nail to not have Japanese Canadians here during the war or after the war. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so there's so many points about Chatham-Kent. Uh, if, if anyone knows the, the story of Dresden, Ontario, a little community here, they held on to segregation for years beyond it being illegal in Canada. And some of the mm-hmm. fights that happened there were uh, in, crucial to our, our development of, of civil rights laws. So, in Canada, we kind of present ourselves as this all-welcoming, all-inclusive country, and that's really a false narrative. Um, mm-hmm. We, of course, have the same history of oppression and genocide as uh, nations like the United States, and uh, mm-hmm. we just portray ourselves differently. And Chatham-Kent is the perfect microcosm to examine that through. It's this little rural community where uh, there's a history of of helping uh, enslaved people to freedom, but also the racism that lives here is just pervasively deep. Yeah, and and I think your book does a really great job with highlighting how Chatham-Kent is sort of a microcosm of Canadian multiculturalism in both like um, the, let's call it the emancipatory um, aspects, but also the, the, the insidious and both hidden and very explicit racism that still exists um, today that we, we sort of see all around us. And, and I want to get into a little bit of the contemporary stuff uh, in a couple of minutes. But uh, another another really, I think, important thing for our, our listeners, uh, at least from my perspective, is the sort of methodology of this book. It's like a vigorously researched book, which I was truly um, shocked by. Each chapter sort of uses the 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 story of a local athlete or a group of local athletes um to sort of illuminate um the how chatham kent is a sort of microcosm of of canadian society and canadian racism and i really want to hear a little bit more about the research process for, for this book um i it it to me seemed like it had the depth and rigor of an of a let's call it an academic book um it, it kind of read uh, as an academic book but it, it's not the sort of explicit audience so so can you walk our our listeners through your research process for this book yeah the research was intensive and you know i believe it holds up to kind of what you're talking about about academia but of course academia is gatekept as well uh, even in the absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> the, the research for me to you know get a get access to peer-reviewed journals and things like that yeah. for this was was a real hurdle in terms of wow. putting together the 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 depth of information that i wanted to include but were you seeking that out were you trying to oh absolutely oh interesting i didn't know that i would uh throughout the the writing process i was emailing different contacts and various people i knew at uh, at 
post-secondary institutions trying to get access or, or in emailing the authors of the papers themselves, hoping they'd, you know, gift me a copy to, to actually be able to include that very valuable information. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but I think the most important part of the research for me was actually the hundreds of hours I spent sitting mm-hmm. across a table from, from the, I don't want to call them the subjects, the characters, the, the people involved in the, in the book, but, uh, you know, or on calls or Zoom meetings or whatever it might have been. But uh, the people in the book and the children of, of those people, their coaches, the elders in the Black and Indigenous communities, I spent as many hours sitting and listening or, uh, you know, at some points walking through the bush or mm-hmm. uh, around a neighborhood to, to learn what it looked like and felt like. Uh, but I think that's the, the real the most important and the, the, what brings the book to life is the, the actual experiences. And uh, I think we often write about our own ideas, um, but I didn't really want to write about my own ideas as much as present the, the critical issues through the lived experiences of the people in the book. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's a, that way it became a new source of information. There's some, some, real local history that's there there's some real canadian history there's real black history and indigenous history and all of those academic topics that we could have studied came to life through just these you know shared experiences of sport and and that's why i think using the lens of sport um i think hopefully it engaged some people that might not have otherwise picked up a book as Mm-hmm. critical or as academic or as um, focused on social issues as this one is. But uh, hopefully through sport, we got some new people into this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the book is called On Account of Darkness, Shining Light on Race and Sport um, with Tidewater Press. You can find all of the links and stuff in the um, show notes. It's a reasonably priced book, um, which is great. So kudos to you and the publisher for that. Um, and I, I urge folks to, to check that out. Uh, I, I kind of want to connect what you're what you're what you've talked about with the book and the book in general to kind of the contemporary, uh, because we've seen sort of in, in recent years. We've seen something of a reckoning um, when it comes to racism in Canadian sport, um, but in, in, in hockey more specifically. Um, of course, we know of Hockey Diversity Alliance, Black Girl Hockey Club, and how they've sort of worked tirelessly to shine light on how racist hockey culture can be. I'm interested if, if in hearing your thoughts on how you would connect the findings from your book, talking about how, how sport can be a sort of lens through which um, racism uh, is viewed, um, and, and link that to the contemporary climate of, of race and sport, particularly in the context of hockey, which is one of your main foci uh, as a critical sports journalist. Yeah, stop me if I go on too long here because I could talk no, about this one all do, day. Please so. do. I, I think this is like the, <laughs> the meat of our talk today. Uh, I mean, uh, hockey has always been racist. There's no way around that. It just is the way that that game has been created and fostered throughout uh, throughout history. But, uh, you know, I believe at one point on your show you talked about uh, – the segregation of swimming and how, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, there with was, Kevin Dawson. Yeah. Yeah. There was little impact or little availability to pools and beaches and how restrictive those, the physical spaces led to stereotypes that we have related to black people in swimming. Um, and it's much the same with hockey arenas were highly segregated. Uh, there was very little access to those spaces where sport was being played in a formal setting. Um, you know, and because of that less, people of color have learned to skate throughout history and, and yeah. uh, that means it's not passed down through generations. It's, and it's led to underrepresentation uh, for hockey at all levels right now. So I think in my book that that issue is highlighted through people like Wilfred Boomer Harding, who's a person I really like to talk about from the book. Uh, you know, in 1944, he went to try to attend public skating with his family uh, at Detroit's Olympia Stadium, which was the home of the Detroit Red Wings in the NHL at the time. And his family was turned away right at the gates to the ice, saying that mm-hmm. public skating meant white. That's what the arena attendant told them. Uh, and, wow. and two years later, after serving overseas in the war, in the war um, Boomer was signed to a pro contract in Detroit. Uh, 
but when the team that he signed with found out that he was black, they traded him to a Canadian team in Windsor. Um, but luckily for him, through that that team in Windsor, the Windsor Staffords, in 1946, he actually returned to uh, Detroit's Olympia Stadium and became the first ever black man to skate on that ice surface uh, when his Windsor team played a Detroit team. And um, so he broke that color barrier there, despite the the structural barriers that were placed in front of him. And those were pretty strong because it was another 11 years before another black hockey player skated at Olympia Stadium. So, mm. um, but you know, that's, today those barriers, uh, what used to be pure segregation are, are still upheld through socioeconomic barriers to the sport of hockey, travel requirements. Yeah. Um, you know, the systems in general are revolving around whiteness. They're upheld by overt racism in, in arenas and dressing rooms. Um, and sport has always, especially hockey, been tied to to that push to to make things more white, I guess. Really, there's mm-hmm. no way around saying that other than that white supremacist idea. And uh, uh, for example, at, at Canadian residential schools, so we talk a lot about the residential school system in, in On Account of Darkness. But yeah. we tie it to uh, sport, to the cultural genocide that was perpetrated against Indigenous people and how hockey was used as a tool of assimilation. So, yeah. uh, of course, you know, hockey in Canada being tied so tightly to our, our nationalism and, and specifically of white settler Canada, uh, it was an effective weapon at residential schools to contribute to that cultural genocide. So, of course, uh, in the book, I talked to a man named Bill Sands who survived residential school at Mohawk Institute, and he was a, a goalie on their hockey team there. Um, and he remembers every Saturday night being brought to a room and the only form of entertainment the kids were given uh, outside of how they could entertain themselves was to watch Hockey Night in Canada once a week. Um, so, you know, that game is so tied to our Canadian identity of that yeah. colonial identity that hockey at those facilities was used to, quote unquote, make youth feel more Canadian, whatever that means. Um, yeah. but you know, then it was used as a tool of punishment because obviously it's a fun game. So when the youth at these facilities, uh, and I hate to call them schools, so I, I more often say facilities, but, uh, yeah. uh, when they fell in love with the game, of course, it could be then taken away, uh, as discipline. And that was documented with leaders of certain schools saying that the ice rink was more important to their efforts than the classroom. Wow. So, you know, how does it connect to current issues? Well, look at all of the underrepresentation. Look at the stereotypes. Look at the the racist slurs that we see. Uh, hockey has always been predominantly white, and yeah. um, you know, seeing these racialized youth feel excluded, facing direct racism. Well, we need to understand the why and the the how we got to this point, and by understanding that history, that how things started, how sport was used, not just as uh, a tool of assimilation, but an overall a tool, a, a weapon. Uh, you know, it was weaponized against people of color to uphold all of the, the structural and sy- systemic uh, forms of racism. So if we can't understand how we got here, I don't understand how we're going to fix it. And that's the, the contemporary connection, I hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And, and I thought... The, the story with Bill Sands was one of the most compelling pieces of, of the book, um, to, be, to be honest. It was just really compelling reading. So, again, I, I urge folks to, to check that out. So uh, also just, just generally connecting it to contemporary sport, we, we've seen from the Chicago NHL franchise issues with both the name and imagery and, and, uh, and indigenous mascotry, as well as like the massive rampant, um, abuse, sexual abuse and harm on that, that happened, uh, uh, within that franchise to recent, um, basically, uh, parliamentary debates talking about uh, Hockey Canada's approach uh, and an apologia of se- sexual and endorsement, really, of sexual violence to Logan Mayu's um, drafting with the Montreal Canadiens and now seemingly like redemption story happening uh, at uh, as he plays for the London Knights. Uh, and even like systemic sexual abuse that sort of happened all across the sporting landscape. It appears to me 
that hockey has very, very clear existential problems. Not just the NHL, not just like the professional professional, uh, organizations, but also just the entire culture. I'd like to ask you generally, as a critical sports scholar or sports journalist, sorry, uh, who who focuses on hockey, I want to ask you about hockey culture and whether or not you think it's redeemable in any way. Um, and and we could go on and on, and we already have about the toxicity of this culture. But I'm really curious to get your take on whether or not you view, if you think that hockey culture can be redeemed in any way. Well, the issues are systemic, like you said. From there's the list is incredible, and it's. Uh, I I feel like I barely even uh, touched on anything. It, it's like maybe the last couple of weeks uh, of things. Stuff it just keeps piling on, and I think that's uh, for someone like me, it's very frustrating because um, I think people think that I'm going out there just searching and digging for these stories, but they just keep presenting themselves. Uh, it's it's an unstoppable news cycle right now, so. Uh, it is very frustrating, but of course, I think it's redeemable. I, I think if I uh, I swing at all these issues when I'm talking about them with a hammer, but I'm an optimist. Uh, you know, I think if I wasn't, if I didn't believe there was possible systemic change, uh, I I think I think I'd be a pretty uh, you know twisted person, I guess myself, to continue writing about these things and advocating and talking about them if I thought that that the effort that what I was doing was just causing argument or something because that's what it yeah. seems like it does on most days but of course i think it's uh i think it's redeemable but it's it's a generation away um the kids that are right now picking up hockey sticks for the first time ever that are entering arena spaces for the first time ever um that's where this is really starting um that's where the inclusiveness and equity can be more normalized i guess is at that mm-hmm. point uh, because it's going to take years of intensive education and re-education and unlearning of of patterns um and then you know strict policy that's going to have to deal with these issues because the sport is truly steeped in violence it's it's steeped in abuse it's yeah. steeped in entitlement uh you know the idea that somehow being good at like this game with a you know i always like to say that people are just tying little knives to their feet and skating around uh, frozen water hitting a, a piece of rubber with a stick and when you think about mm. it that uh, um you know detached in that way it's it's just a game but people thinking that being good at that um you know gives them power or or ability to freely act in any way uh is is troubling you know and i lived it i i watched the the sexual conquests, I was hazed, I was initiated in mm. demeaning, abusive ways. Uh, my coaches watched and laughed. Uh, they participated in these things. And I was taught, just like everybody else in, in uh, those com- competitive levels of the game, that uh, you know we could treat anyone else any way that we wanted to, uh, in particular that, that was directed usually towards women. Um, and if you didn't want to do that, of course, you were outsided. You were, you were outcast in the game. And uh, my identity was formed through those ideas. I perpetuated many of them myself. Um, and I think that to a point, um, I've changed. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that uh, I'm not there anymore. And I think that if I can learn and I can change and I can um you know, discuss these things and become educated and advocate for the proper programming and safety precautions and uh, a cultural change that it is redeemable because there's people, teammates of mine that have done the exact same thing and and have come out of it and realized that it's a fun game, but it's not something worth, uh, you know, creating more power imbalances and, and, it's not something worth upholding these systems of racism. So it's going to be a grassroots mm-hmm. movement. Um, it's going to involve the bigger bodies as well, which yeah. I think was great this year uh, when we finally saw the reckoning with Hockey Canada because it is going to take, um, I think, almost people like myself and some of the other hockey friends that I have that have moved into this side of the discussion uh, to kind of mutiny one by one. It's not going to be a mass wave. It's going to take this little... Uh, underground movement where we were fighting from the inside out and, and I, but I do think it's redeemable for sure. 
Yeah, and, and perhaps my follow-up is a little bit um, unfair to you. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I'll, I'll just leave the preface at that. But you mentioned that it's a, a sort of generation away. And you're talking about some of the steps that, that might um, have and the players that might have to go into it. But like how, like from us, where we are now to the next generation, what would sort of have to happen to kind of redeem, like in, in a sort of perfect world, what would have to happen to redeem hockey and hockey culture? In your view, I'm not asking you to, to offer us all the damn solutions. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not what this question is. Uh, it's, it feels more like a burn it right to the ground and build it up again situation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what it feels like. But I, I, you know, I think there's lots that can be done one of the ways is through education, of course, you know, reading uh, even a book like my own, but not, you know, that's a kind of uh, narcissistic kind of way to put it. But it, uh, I don't, you know, I think that there's a point, though, to reading or listening to other voices and seeing yeah. that history uh, upheld and humanizing the issues. And, and a lot of the people doing this work right now are, are talking about that humanizing, making real the issues so that. You know, if your teammates going through racism, uh, you're far more likely to do something than if your opponent's going through it. So as soon as yeah. things become humanized to us and connected and tied to us, um, I think that's going to play a major role. But it definitely, um, you know, the people in, in my generation um, and the generations older are really already caked in this whole thing. There's no um, easy way out so it's going to take bodies like hockey canada to provide yeah. extensive re-education every year yeah. and right now the belief is that that's a one hour online course to start every season <laughs> yeah. um and of course that is going to do nothing so the other thing is really coming up with a lot of community connections you know there's resources in every community um a lot of public health units or women's centers or in my community, people like the Black History Museum, um, they would all, you know, be more than welcome to to come into any team that invited them. But I don't think that a lot of men in this masculine sport yeah. feel comfortable. You know, it's the old adage of, of will you stop and ask for directions? Well, yeah. right now we need to stop and ask for directions because we're driving uh, blindly, just thinking that things will change, that we'll find our way. But we are definitely uh, you know, on the wrong road. So we need to stop and and peel it all back and bring in uh, experts. I'd love to see, it would be uh, almost a little post-apocalyptic to see academics really getting their say in hockey, but uh, <laughs> it would be an interesting way to, to kind of tap into the knowledge that's actually out there and let some guidance happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like even, even in my local community of London, seeing the London Knights kind of, not willing to engage with local community stakeholders um, like the London Mosque um, extensively has been kind of shocking. Uh, and I don't think it's it's disconnected from the fact that they traded for and are um, active participants in the, let's call it rebranding of Logan, Logan Mayu uh, as he uh, enters his or, or tries to enter his way into the, into the NHL. Um, so I, I really, I think I, I'm really on board with that sort of, you must work with community members and must be willing to. And that, and the, it seems to be in my experience and seeing around um, Ontario, it's, it's a lot of people not willing and not wanting and not, to, not seeking out those uh, community uh, involvement and, and stakeholders, um, which is really important. And one, I just want to quickly shout out uh, another book uh, in this area um, by uh, Courtney Zito, um, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians, another brilliant book um, that that listeners of the show will know of. We had Courtney on the, uh, we had Dr. Zito on the, um, on the show uh, a while ago. But I think that those are the types of books I think that you're referencing, Ian. Uh, and and types of ev forms of education that perhaps we can um, get folks to to read and listen to. Absolutely, Courtney's amazing. No, uh, brilliant. And and what am, I I want to shift a little bit of focus. Like you've done it such a uh, it's been a great conversation about the toxicity of uh, hockey and hockey culture. But I want to I want to shift a little bit to to broadly your work as a critical journalist. I keep saying you're a critical journalist. If you don't feel like you are, or if you you want me to say something else, please do. <laughs> but in my view, you're one of the very few, and I got I have to give you a, a lot of credit. 
um, one of the very few truly critical sports journalists. And that to me is probably one of the the best um, compliments I could give you. So please don't take it as anything, um, <laughs> anything and, and hockey journalists, no less um, out there because there's not many critical um, hockey journalists. I, I think, I, I would put put folks like Rick Westhead, obviously, um, at the at the front, Tara Sloan um, uh, at the front of that uh, in terms of, of critical takes. Um, and also the, the folks at SDPN, um, Steve, Steve Dangle podcast, increasingly um, critical, um, Adam Wilde, Jesse Blake and Steve, Steve Dangle. Um, for, and again, if you disagree with any of those folks, please feel free. But I, I, I want to kind of get your take on an over topographical view of the critical hockey journalism field. Who do you sort of go to, um, for your, uh, critical takes? Like who do you respect in the field as a critical sports journalist? Oh, I think a lot of the people that you just mentioned there are wonderful examples. Uh, I'd add Katie Strang to that. Yep, I think yep. she's done a lot of really wonderful work, uh, Shireen Ahmed is incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's so many people that are doing the work right now that uh, never would have even had this opportunity before because the the sports media complex is largely this public relations department for multi-billion dollar franchises and institutions. Um, you know, it's all about yeah. marketing, about selling tickets and filling seats and uh, merchandise and idolizing these athletes, but that's not journalism. It's, you know, it is media, of course, but, yeah. but it's not questioning the systems. It's not holding anyone accountable. It's not naming harm when it's presented to us. Um, you know, so I think that getting this topic of, of being allowed to be more critical, um, is going to be a big portion of normalizing it and seeing other journalists jump into it because, um, you know, if I think everyone recognizes the bad things that are going on in hockey. I don't think that there's a lot of media members out there that don't recognize these issues. And if they do, we've got another yeah. problem, but um, it's not accepted, you know, it's not. And it seems surface level to yeah. be like, to be completely frank, the people who are, who are at the, the height of, um, hockey reporting, I think it's more reporting than anything, that they they will acknowledge it, but they simply do not engage in the discussion mm -hmm. at a deep or structural level or even begin to critique the, the power structures. Um, sorry to interject. No, <laughs> that, I, it, I don't think you disagree with that. No, it's it's true. But the I think the real issue there is that um, much like as a player, speaking out on a team would have repercussions that yeah. is a real issue in this field as well um there's a lot of backlash there's a lot of uh pressure there's a lot of threats and uh i don't think most sports journalists feel safe doing that and yeah. i think that that's why we're not talking about it um you know i think we get more of those celebratory pieces during black history month or yeah or you know at pride events where people are, are willing to uh write stories about the good things that happened and and that's amazing we of course need to talk about black excellence and uh and all of these topics of that, course, and yeah. celebrate we have to do that but um we can't celebrate blindly and then allow the people that we just celebrated to uh, you know, then face the same oppressive systems that have always been there. So it's really a, um, you know, we, as media, we have to do that. That's, that's our role. Yeah. Um, not just celebrating blindly, but, but questioning when things aren't right too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how and when sort of did you decide that you were going to take this approach in your work, this sort of critical approach in a world where, as you, as we both laid out, apologists and protectionists, that's what I like to call them, um, seem to thrive, uh, people who protect the system. What drives you to tell the critical stories in the hockey world? That's a really good question. You know, I think that um, just like I said, like any person, I was really steeped and raised in that toxic environment, um, you know, how I believed masculinity was. Um, what I believed about the LGBTQ plus community, all of those things were really ingrained upon me at an early age uh, through every facet of, of my existence. But, you know, hockey playing a very, very central role in that. Mm -hmm. um, and as I 
just grew older, you know, went to university. Um, I became an educator as well and, and meeting students and people that had differing backgrounds from mine. Um, I think by that point, obviously, my mindset had changed quite a bit, but I wasn't doing the the writing uh to this extent yet and uh yeah but kind of that real you know face to face again i i said humanizing a bunch of times but getting into that community and and seeing the harm caused in real life in real time is um you know very impactful and, and at some point i realized that these people that i had believed something about i don't even know what it would have been whether depending on what group we're talking about, you know, the stereotypes I'd been taught were, were all false. And they were, there was reasons behind them. And, you know, so soon I, uh, I was writing for a, a local website that I had created called the Chatham Kent Sports Network. Yeah. And um, I started just saying, you know what, I'm going to write about this, I'm going to put out a, a, an article about a toxic event. And that's kind of where I started was with a lot of masculinities. And, um, uh, and those types of topics in it. And uh, then I joined Twitter, of course, uh, the logical progression in, in all uh, <laughs> critical thinkers' lives. And uh, uh, that was great because I found like-minded people that yeah. uh, that encouraged this kind of discourse around sport. Um, because let me tell you, locally, I was taking a lot of backlash and heat for it. Uh, and so finding that that community uh, people like the end of sport you know uh, that was really powerful for me online yeah no absolutely and, and yeah we met on twitter um full disclosure for the audience we met on twitter <laughs> and and uh, have become closer over the over the years i guess a couple years maybe at yeah, this point yeah. um so yeah we yeah we definitely appreciate the work on um uh, uh ckSN um I'll link that uh, in the in the bio uh, or in the show notes as well so what uh, great stuff and you mentioned briefly the sort of some backlash and I'd like to get into that we we tend to ask journalists um about the backlash that they get we all sort of anyone doing critical work in the field of sports is inevitably going to get some backlash so can you tell us about any like professional or even personal backlash that you received from doing this critical work I can tell you that it's immense and it's ongoing. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think every week, uh, there was a week just a few ago that uh, I think I got something like 5,000 replies to uh, a couple of tweets that I put out. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of them were not friendly um, or they were harmful to the communities that I was talking about or, or trying to, uh, you know, amplify. And it was... Uh, so I receive, you know, numerous threats of violence or harm, I guess. Mm. Uh, even in my community, I had a, a local coach reach out and tell me that he better not effing see my face in the arena. Uh, wow. You know, and, uh, uh, but I get hundreds of messages and uh, professionally, you know, finding outlets that will support this work is, is a problem. And I think for, yeah. for a lot of critical sports journalists uh, no one wants to kind of bite the hand that feeds them per se yeah. in sport and uh, in that sports media complex and, and you know the hand is teams and leagues so mm -hmm. when i'm criticizing teams and leagues um you know i've had people tell me that i'm going to be denied interviews and access to players um because i might have called out abusive or violent players or racist actions or homophobic actions and uh i've been asked to kind of try to disassociate myself with, uh, you know, some outlets that I might freelance for um, because they don't want to get the calls of people saying that they're going to cancel their subscription if, wow. if they don't fire me or, and, and there is that call constantly. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I operate in this constant state of fear that someday um, the people calling for my job are going to get their wish. And uh, mm -hmm. in fact, I think that it's a race right now. I think that unless we can change hockey culture uh that's going to happen like i think it will yeah. happen um so that uh that fight for this change to to happen can't come soon enough because if we can normalize at least having the conversation then uh, uh maybe that will be prolonged a bit but there's <laughs> there's definitely a lot of powerful people um ownership franchises management that uh, that regularly have communicated to me maybe not with me but to me that um you know, I need to watch what I'm doing because I have to, uh, and I've been told this, that I need to make a decision whether or not I want to be an insider and get information to 
uh, leagues like the NHL and, and the Canadian hockey leagues and, and things like that, or if I want to keep doing what I'm doing and, right. um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And, Good. um, you know, if that means that I don't get to, uh, interview Austin Matthews or, or somebody like that. And I've never had negative interaction with the Toronto Maple Leafs. So don't take that one out of context, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, if, if that's what it means, that's what it means. No problem. Yeah. I guess, uh, I'll, I'll find someone that wants to talk about the issue. Yeah. And part of that, part of this whole thing we've talked about on the show directly and indirectly is the, the fact that like the, the conservative side of the world tends to bemoan this so-called cancel culture of the woke left and all that crap. But when you actually peel back the onion, the true cancel culture is exactly what you're talking about. Well, that's, they're calling, I mean, that all the people that are, are, as you said, bemoaning that cancel culture are the ones that are emailing my, my editors and my, you know, it's, it's constant saying you have to fire this person or else I'm going to cancel my subscription. So it's a, you know, a double cancel they're doing there. Yeah. And you've seemed to find, like find a pretty good niche with, with great freelance writing in uh, some amazing outlets. So you've, it seems like you've found some support. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. I think that each one wants to approach it at at, uh, their own comfort level and pace but there are outlets out there that want to do this and at the very least there are outlets out there that are wanting more of those celebratory pieces as well now and that's you know probably a first step into opening them up to a more critical conversation is is showing them the value of highlighting um, people that have been oppressed even if we're not directly talking about the oppression itself yeah, yeah. So speaking of some um, backlash recently, um, this happened just last week, and I, I DM'd you about it because I find it uh, fascinating all the time. Um, you were quote tweeted by the one and only non-smart person, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> uh, and some of the, I guess some of the context for this, and we'll again link this this really great piece that you wrote on the Ottawa Senators, um, uh, uh, that you wrote this piece about how the team are or did directly and indirectly um, amplify the known bigot um, while sort of trying to convince the world that they care about equity, diversity, and inclusion, just as the sort of NHL does in their massive sports washing hockey is for everyone campaign. Um, so I want to give you a chance to talk about that piece and, and just sort of what you were talking about. Can you just tell us about that piece that you wrote on uh, uh, Ottawa Senators and sort of the impetus for this sort of Twitter exchange. And and then we'll get into a little bit of how you handled it. Sure. Yeah. So last year, um, there's a hockey organization called Team Trans. It's uh, a hockey team or teams comprised completely of trans individuals. Uh, and they held a tournament. Um, and the NHL, surprisingly, actually, I think, uh, you know, did pretty well in their amplification and support of this they posted on social media about the event uh, which of course as we've talked brought that kind of uh you know that that discussion out of the woodworks of uh, the harmful comments and the homophobia yeah. and transphobia and the comments yeah the comment section came in full force uh but surprisingly and astutely i think uh, the nhl really uh replied succinctly and supportively saying that um, I, I don't remember the tweet exactly, but it said something like trans men are men, trans women are women, and we support the identities of non-binary people. And, and um, it was so clear and concise that it was shocking for a professional sports team to do that. Whoever was in charge of the, the social media that day, uh, you know, deserves a medal. But the statement um, also really weaponized hockey for people like Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis. And yeah. of course... Yeah. Uh, Jordan Peterson, who came right back at the NHL um, saying that the league was doomed because of that stance. And uh, so, of course, you know, Peterson being a known transphobe and misogynist, um, uh, I started looking into it because I thought that was a really interesting uh, development to see people like himself weighing into hockey conversations. And, uh, you know, of course, it's it's more broad than a hockey conversation, but yeah. still to use yeah. the the avenue or the venue of hockey. But um, so I started looking into it and then I saw that he was attending uh, on a speaking tour, several NHL arenas, including uh, the Canadian Tire Centre in Ottawa, which is the home of the Ottawa Senators. And what made that one unique was that the Ottawa Senators ownership also owns the Canadian Tire Centre. So it was not just this 
passive rental agreement. Uh, it was a real decision to give this man more platform in their community in the same physical space that they tout hockey is for everyone yeah. um, to speak this rhetoric. And, uh, you know, I reached out to the senators. I reached out to uh, the Canadian Tire Center. I reached out to Jordan Peterson and I got no reply, uh, of course, but I got massive response from social service uh, groups in Ottawa that support uh, whether it's women and domestic violence, LGBTQ groups, uh, yeah. and they were afraid. They were afraid yeah. of the messaging yeah. that he was bringing and the potential. Of course, they weren't afraid of, of physical harm at the event, but they were worried about the aftermath, what the messaging that all of the attendees were holding and then would go back and disseminate in the community yeah. and the, the potential for, you know, transphobic violence and, and anything else that Peterson was talking about. So I wrote about it and I, uh, I questioned it and I, I gave voice to those groups and, um, you know, outlined a little bit of, of Mr. Peterson's background. And, um, of course it was met with backlash, uh, <laughs> including, uh, Peterson himself, who said that I either had to be stupid or evil to have that kind of understanding of his words um so yeah that's that was the the background the impetus for the article yeah and and what happened after that um did did you receive more hate than like i'm always interested in, in when when a tweet gets quote tweeted by someone like that what sort of happens after the fact oh the replies were awful but but i really have stopped reading those i think it's yeah. a, 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 you know a safeguard for our own mental health um, of course, there were some people that infiltrated my DMs and not just on Twitter, but, you know, found me other places to to make sure that they uh, got their words in. And uh, usually it, it wasn't a conversation. It was just a few, uh, you know, insults or whatever. But how I handled it was basically not to respond, at least to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I did engage in some of those DM conversations. And actually, I, I feel like we had productive conversations that some views softened in those, uh, you know, exchanges. But uh, for Peterson himself, I was silent. I think that my role was, uh, I asked him for comment. He didn't. Um, my role was to discuss the issue, to uh, not to engage with the, the perpetrator himself, you know, not to place myself in his line of fire by opening myself up to the continued conversation. So um, hockey's not for everyone. Uh, we can't say it is. We say it when it's convenient, like during Black yeah. History Month or Pride Month, and then we forget about that commitment when it comes to, let's say, making some money from hosting a person like Jordan Peterson. You know, that's yeah. that's when it's uh, convenient to forget that statement. And I think that it's really disingenuous for um, National Hockey League teams to openly say those things and then the actions, the the, the actual financial you know the the monies where of course unfortunately still money talks and power talks and and uh they give those people money and power and it it, it amplifies the the voice that we don't need in hockey yeah absolutely and i and i appreciate you sort of holding the senators um to the to the fire there um on that because as you point out the hockey is for everyone campaign may be one of the most hypocritical campaigns gen across um it's hockey. insidious it is it's it's awful. It, it absolutely is it, it's like it 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 is simply just rhetoric um as and cover for um a, a culture and also a league um and a series of organizations that simply aren't for everyone not not when it comes to fans, not when it comes to uh, athletes, not when it comes to coaches or general managers uh, or anyone. And it's, it's, been, it's been used to, you know, hockey is for everyone is this blanket statement. They're not willing yeah. to say we're anti-racist. Yes. They're not willing yes. to say, you know, trans lives matter and black lives matter. They're not willing to say those things. They're not willing to, uh, you know, change rules and policy or fund things. They just... And hockey is for everyone replaced those things. Like there yeah. aren't, uh, most teams don't have to run pride nights. They run hockey is for everyone nights, yes. you know, and that's, yes. so it's a way to uh, say that hockey is yes for the LGBTQ plus community and racialized communities. But yes, hockey is also for bigots and yeah. everyone has entry equally. And that's kind of where we saw the, the Peterson question come in. 
Yeah, it's an interesting angle, a connection there between hockey is for everyone and the sort of all lives matter. Um, that's exactly movement. it. Yep, you've got it perfectly. Yeah. It, 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 that's wild. So, so shifting, I, I appreciate, I appreciate everything you've said there, and, and um, solidarity with you <laughs> as you <laughs> keep pushing on the system. Um, and if you ever get quote tweeted again, it'll be maybe we'll have you back on and, and ask you more um, about sort of handling. Um, handling those things because i think like some of our listeners might be aspiring journalists or reporters um and they or they might be journalists and um and reporters right now um so so hearing from folks like yourself who've gone through it um always gives some good tips uh, and tricks for for other for other folks listening um i want to shift focus just a little bit to just the state of canadian sport um and i know it's not in explicitly what you've been covering, but I'd like to get your, your thoughts on the current state of Canadian sport, um, abuse in Canadian sport and the, the many calls for a judicial inquiry into abuse in Canadian sport. And, and again, full disclosure for, um, for our listeners, all three of the hosts of, of the end of sport are signatories to the scholars, uh, calling for, uh, a judicial inquiry into, into harm in sport. So that our position there is very clear, um, that we want a judicial inquiry, um, but I'm I'm interested to get your your take, um, Ian, just generally on the 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 current state of abuse in Canadian sport. Well, it's going to be a pretty biased conversation, I think, here. But uh, the uh, I when uh, when that first call came out from uh, Macintosh Ross, I uh, I actually reached out to him on social media saying, you know, why don't we get journalists to do this yeah. too? Why don't we get another letter and uh, he thought that was a great idea. I wanted to kind of uh, be part of it. And uh, there was barely anybody that replied. Uh, it was very, um, and uh, you know, again, I think that comes from obviously in journalism, we're supposed to stay unbiased, but I don't think you can be unbiased about, you know, sexual violence and abuse. There's, there's no second side to that argument. So yeah, the, the, the state of, of, sport in Canada is that we have a lot of governing bodies that are unprepared to deal with these issues. They are, um, you know, focused solely on the excellence of performance, uh, but not how that's achieved. And a lot of the times the control that's, that's brought into their organizations, the, uh, abuse of power, that's where, uh, we really need to dig into how that's happening, why that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I, I fully support a, a judicial inquiry. I think that there's, um, you know, Hockey Canada got its its day uh, standing in front of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage. And we found yeah. so much. Um, yeah. You know, there was, uh, I questioned the the impartiality of that uh, that review as well, the investigation. But I think that we did uncover quite a bit of information that was, uh, shocking to Canadians, you know, how their public money that uh, they pay for their children's registrations was being used to pay for uh, sexual assault yeah. claims and things. Yeah. And, and it continues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, but the there's also the side of it that the athletes themselves are yeah. facing abuse. You know, a, the vast majority of the payouts that occurred through Hockey Canada were based on the abuse faced by athletes from people like Graham James in hockey. Yeah. And, uh, but we've seen stories like this in soccer. We've seen stories like this in gymnastics. You know, it's coming out in every swimming, uh, every corner of, of sport. And uh, that, that says something's more broad. But the only problem is right now that because of Canada's love for hockey, because of its, um, you know, its inability to look in any other direction at any other sport, I think that the focus has been so tied to fixing hockey but we're ignoring people that are facing abuse in all these other sports and yeah there's there, that's a major problem and the systems that govern one are not that different than the systems that govern govern the others so taking a, a collaborative approach really digging deep um i think is so crucial and, and i i'm not um i'm definitely not for the you know there's been calls for the restorative justice approach to this all. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm definitely not for that. Um, yeah. I think it places the, you know, the victims in a lot of, uh, more harm uh, and we should be listening to those victims rather than, uh, just kind of 
choosing these systems that we think work. And there's probably a space for it on an individual basis here and there as the victim so wants, but not uh, as a broad spectrum. So the first thing would be to dig into it with that judicial inquiry and find the truth, find the shortcomings, uh, find how people are, how were able to, to do this for so long yeah. and go unquestioned or, or, or unstopped even. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the position, the supporters of the restorative justice model, um, the most insidious aspect of that seems to be, seems to me that the continuous thread that they all say is that we know about abuse in sport. The research has told us about the long lasting, well-documented uh, abuse in Canadian sport. That, that one is wrong. Like it's first off just simply not factual. If we know, if we knew about the abuse in sport, we would have launched an inquiry by now, or we would have done something by now. Uh, and it, it wouldn't have taken, um, a, a, so many, so many survivors and investigative journalists to, to uncover in the last, I'd say two years to uncover a lot of these, these, um, really harmful things that are happening in Canadian sport. And, and like, yeah, I think that's part of, I don't know if that comes from a protectionist, um, want to protect the system and the people within the system or whether it comes from, uh, a, an overarching love of sport. As you mentioned, we just love uh, sport so much. We don't want to do anything, but I, I feel like the restorative justice, uh, approach is, is this really, it's really insidious. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a little bit harmful, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think when people talk about knowing that this goes on, well, there is a much deeper, I mean, we only see the tip of the iceberg and, Absolutely. Uh, among the, the sports journalists that are doing this type of work, um, we communicate to each other, despite the fact that, you know, we're not with the same publications or whatever, because yeah. getting these stories out is, more important than having our names attached to it. And yep. um, because, I, you know, I think that we've kind of come up with a, I'd love to see the research on it, actually, but I don't know how you would do that. Um, we, we kind of believe that it's about a one in 20, that if you receive 20 of these stories, you're actually able to get, you know, one to publication. Wow. Uh, and of course, that's just an estimate in my yeah, own regard. Course, it's, there's no, yeah. no scientific yeah. background to that. But it's, uh, regardless of that fact, if it was one in five, it's too many. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, um, but, you know, getting people on record is so difficult. And, uh, you know, you, you can often get the, the victim uh, or you can't. And I've got one case like that right now where I, I know the exact person who did something, but because of the NDAs that yeah. were signed in court uh, 10 years ago, we can't talk about it still. And yeah. uh, that victim um, can't become a part of this conversation and uh you know that's a real problem and i think that's something yeah. that we saw come up in the hockey canada as well yeah absolutely it's, this, this has been such a, a wonderful conversation ian and I, I really urge our listeners to, to check out all the links we have we're going to link to your Substack, to the book to your twitter um we'll have a bunch of of links in the show notes um for our listeners but um, before we go, I just want to ask, like, what's on the horizon for you? Are you writing in any any new writing in the backpack? Like, any new books on the on the horizon? Yeah, definitely. I have um, I have a second book coming. Um, I'm I'm gonna do it again with Tidewater Press. Um, coming fall of 2024, if all goes as planned and all goes mm -hmm. well. Um, and it's it's going to talk about you know a lot of the issues that we just discussed as well, and and other items, but it's going to look at uh, women's hockey and um, it's going to talk about a lot of the issues that, uh, you know, moving from race a bit to some of the gender and sexism and misogyny that's uh, in sport and the barriers that were placed there as well. And I've got uh, uh, a group of hockey hall of famers involved and Olympians involved and uh, really a, an impressive uh, cast of people that are going to tell their stories and have their backgrounds in this book and uh, including a, a hall of famer that's, that's uh, um, right now agreed to write the, the foreword to the book. And so, you know, there's uh, a lot going on there and it's going to probably spend a lot of time um, looking at this Canadian product that we're talking about, uh, but it will also have quite a bit of American tie. Um, you know, we'll, we'll discuss like title nine and all those things mm -hmm. of course as well, but uh, 
um, yeah, that's that's on the horizon and, and just uh, continuing writing, I guess, and yeah. continuing talking about these issues uh, and uh, hopefully becoming more in, involved in that conversation and helping uh, anybody uh, amplify their organization that's doing good work and, and becoming part of that yeah. uh, broader solution, I guess, just like you all are. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to all of that. And Ian Kennedy, thank you again um, from everyone. I know it's just me here today, but I know Johanna and, and Nathan are excited about this episode as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Derek. Thank you.